0: preaching of God's Word from Psalm 69 and verse 4. This psalm is noted in its reading, though a psalm that describes certainly things that David faced, yet they are things that were most fully realized in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you'll notice just a number of things from this psalm. For instance, in verse 21, It says, They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Notice as well that, among other things, wherein he expresses his suffering. Yet we also find a testimony against Judas in verse 25, which is quoted in the Acts of the Apostles, that their habitation be desolate and let none dwell in their tents, which the apostles understand to be the removal of Judas from his office, and the need for another to stand in that apostolic office. Well, it's verse 4 that we give our attention to now, as we read, "'They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Then I restored that which I took not away.'" Now surely we can see in David himself the reality of this verse, as he was a true friend to Saul, and yet by Saul chased away and uh, sought out that he would be considered his enemy, Saul's enemy, wrongfully. And there were soldiers of war that were against David. And yet for what cause? David had done no wrong in those to those men. He had rather stood for the cause of Zion and had done much to serve. As Saul had killed his thousands of the enemies of God's people, David had only done more, not out of any selfish ambition, but as one who had sought the good of Zion and the glory of God's name. And he stood as reproached and the object of great enmity. And yet it's Christ who far surpasses all the good that David did. It's Christ who was only a friend to (laughs) sinners and was clear in teaching the way of truth and holding forth the way of forgiveness and ever spoke what was right and needed and good and ever did what was right and needed and good and never did anything that was wicked, sinful or wrong. Indeed, never was he silent when he should have spoken. And never did he speak when he should have been silent. Everything about Christ was perfect. Indeed, still is perfect. But his earthly ministry is marked by this perfect commitment and fulfillment of all righteousness. And yet, astonishingly, the Gospels record that even his very own, that is the Jews in covenant with God, became his enemies. They received him not. They sought his death and destruction. And we see that here. Notice the verse. They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Who was it that was often planning the destruction of Christ? Chief priests, the scribes, the lawyers, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, Men of high rank, men of great dignity, outwardly influence and authority, and ever gathering together to seek how they might put out this one. And yet, for what cause? Remember, John 18 actually records it when he is struck. And then he responds, Why do you smite me? Why do you strike me? If there's wrong that I've done accuse me of it, show me of it, and yet they could not. Pilate himself, though a godless man, was persuaded he was innocent of any transgression. And yet notice, he's the object of hatred. He is the focus of their destroying strategy. And he is forced, notice the end of verse 4, to restore that which I took not away. So it's not just that he's accused or made the object of hatred. He's actually, as it were, apprehended and forced to pay for what he's not done. Now, the news media would go berserk if such a story gripped our land. Certainly not of any Christian. But if someone were forced to pay something that they did not owe, all of the civil justice Marauders would be crazy in testifying against the injustice of such a thing. But never has there been so great an injustice as what Christ underwent. That men should seek his death, should so shame him as we've read, and do all of these things because he himself was perfectly innocent of any such transgression But we have to see behind all of this, the divine cause. Because we'll remember that God is at work in all of this. So for instance, if you turn to Isaiah and chapter 53, most prominent in perhaps all of the Old Testament, we have these very clear testimonies of what's going on. That it's not merely the unjust actions of men that's at work, But it is the just action of God at work. And so you'll notice in verse 6, it is that the end, the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here is the grounding of what he suffers. And so you read, for instance, Psalm 69, you say, wait, he's confessing sin. Jesus Christ didn't have sin, but he did. Not personal sins he committed, but the sins of his people imputed unto him, on, which now, uh, on him which now weigh heavily. And he feels the weight, though personally innocent, God has placed and made him to be sin for us, though he knew no sin. And what comes from that? Well, it is, as noted, verse 10, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Notice the statement. He, God, Jehovah, hath put him to grief. And so it is in Zechariah, for instance, that it is that God says, Awake, O sword, against the man that is my fellow. The instrument of vengeance and justice is to come crashing down and executing the fierce wrath of God against Christ. And so what's going on here is through the wicked hands of men, through the wondrous and unsearchable providence of God, God is at work executing justice against his son. Not that his son had done anything. But brethren, notice this expression. He restored that which he took not away. He was making payment for something he hadn't stolen. He was there making reparations For something he had not been guilty in the least regarding. All of this is telling us of the glorious arrangement of God by grace. To make Christ the substitute to pay back what we had taken. To make justice satisfied which we had upended. And so here is Christ who is before us restoring what we had taken away. So consider three things as we take this up. Firstly, the need of restoration. Secondly, the way of restoration. Thirdly, the effect of restoration. Take this up with particular viewing of Christ as crucified as today we have the privilege of the Lord's Supper. And we remember that Christ says, this is my body which is broken for you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. Both the broken body and the blood are emblems of his crucifixion, his tormenting and agonizing death being made a curse for us. And here we have one insight, among many others the scriptures afford us, of what was taking place on the cross. One aspect of what he was doing was restoring what we ought to have restored. And on the outset of this message, consider this. If you don't have Christ restoring these things for you, you are going to be the one who restores them. Get that clear in your mind. You might be a covenant child, You might be familiar with the Bible. You might be a professor of faith. You might be well-esteemed by others. But if you don't have Christ as yours, you will be forced by divine justice to restore what you've taken. So consider then the way that God provides for our restoration graciously. Firstly then, the need for restoration. Christ says, I restored that which I took not away. This expression, taking away, is something that's related to stealing. It can have an even more forceful idea of breaking in and uh, robbing, but the essence of this is taking away what is not our own. And what an emblem and expression this is of sin. Every sin, your sin, is an not giving to God the honor that is due unto his name and a taking of that honor from him. Do you realize this? When you sin, you in effect set yourself up as the one worthy to set the rules, worthy to receive honor of men, worthy to be the object of praise, glory, and adoration. And what you effectively do when you sin is you make yourself a living idol. We are astonished, of course, that men should ever carve images and bow down to them. We are at times struck with almost a seeming amusement were it not so profane as the prophets indicate that men should gather wood with which they cook their meals and with which they warm and heat their houses and so on. And yet from that wood, fashion images before which they bow. And yet think of this for a moment. When you sin, you look, as it were, yourself in the mirror and say, I am worthy and more worthy than God. That's what your sins do. In your sins, you're saying to God, not you, but me. You're not the one who deserves instant obedience, absolute faith, complete love, and entire devotion. I am Because every time you sin, effectively you're saying this to God's law. Yes, I know that you say, don't do this, but I'm going to do it. I know that you say, I should do that, but I'm not going to. Now we have our reasons, which seem to us rather forceful and wise and insightful. We say, well, if I did that, that would make me uncomfortable. If I didn't do that, well, I'd lose out. See, we have our justifications, but think of that for a moment. Even those justifications are adding idolatry unto idolatry. Because we're saying effectively this, I'm not going to do what you say because I don't want to. I'm going to do what you say I shouldn't because I want to. We teach our children it's insufficient to say simply to a question, why did you do that? To say, because... There needs to be further explanation. And yet think of the absurdity of every single one of your sins. When it comes down to it and all of the ridiculous excuses we parade and comfort ourselves in, in the end it comes down to this as our excuse. Because I wanted it. That's it. Fundamentally, it's because I wanted it. Now someone could say, well, if I had done what God had said, I would have suffered immeasurably well you may have suffered i dare say it wasn't wouldn't be immeasurable but in the end what you're saying is i would rather not suffer that's what i don't want than to do what god wants i would rather set myself up as the one to whom honor is due than to god and when we go about and do something that is contrary to God's law. We have all of our reasons. Well, this person provoked me. And this circumstance was difficult. And I was rather inclined to do that. And I had my hope that in doing this, well, in the end, it would promote good. All of that reasoning is doing precisely what Adam and Eve did in the garden. They saw that what was forbidden was good, would make them wise, was beautiful, and so on. And so instead of submitting to God... They took their own counsel and gave themselves to the voice of their own reasoning. When God would reprove the sin of mankind in Genesis, remember in Genesis 6, every imagination of the heart, think of that, the counsel, the deliberations, the thoughts of man's heart is only sinful. It's ever festering this counsel of do what is right in your own sight. Well, what is that? It is to take the honor that is due to God and to put it square upon your own thoughts, your own heart. This is why the counsel of even children's entertainment is utterly idolatrous when it's saying do what you want, follow your own desire, listen to your heart, Go your own path. Do your own thing. Make a name for yourself. All of these things which people can put out in positive spins and talk and sell out conferences and sell books and make all this money is fundamentally catering to the idolatrous prerogatives of man's wickedness. I am worthy to do what I want to do. And they fail to see that that is essentially taking the honor that is due unto God and bringing it unto themselves. Well, do you see that your sins are that way? Every single time you sin, you in effect say to God, you're not worthy, but I am. You're not worthy, but I am. You're not going to get that, but I'm going to get it. You're not going to receive that, but I'm going to receive it. This is why, of course, that the punishment of sin is, in our estimation, when our minds are unenlightened, seems overly severe. Because we say, really? Sin? Sinful speech? Sinful thoughts? Sinful desires? Even sinful actions? You're saying that that warrants an eternity of torment in hell forever? See, the world doesn't have any place for that kind of thought. and Unfortunately, even some professed Christians have capitulated on this divinely inspired truth. And the reason is because they have failed to see the enormity of sin. They have failed to see how vile sin is. When unconverted... The only things that stand out to us are those things that embarrass us. Which, by the way, is one more confirmation that our fundamental concern is ourselves. The other things that stand out are those things that seem so comparatively over-the-top cruel and wicked. The Holocaust, rapes, murders, and other such vile displays of gross, abominable transgressions. And yet, when it is that our hearts are renewed and our minds enlightened, we start to discern this. What the world calls the least sin is an infinite infraction against the honor that is due unto God. And when that becomes understood, we start to understand why it is that the only fitting punishment against sin and God's justice is the eternal torment of the damned. And if you want to see what restoration looks like, you can do two things. You can search out the scriptures that speak of torment of hell, where their worm dieth not. It's ever devouring them. Though they're being devoured, they're never finished being devoured. Though they're ever being tormented, they're never finished being tormented. You think of something that is on the side of the road, killed, roadkill. And there, of course, it starts to decay and decompose and You know, flies swarm it and maggots eat on it and so on. But eventually, give it a few days, a few weeks, whatever, it's done. There's no more to consume. Hell isn't like that. Hell is the ongoing, everlasting destruction and decay. Their worm never dies. Their corruption is never finished. Their torment is never ended. That's one way of seeing the reality of hell where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth. Some of you have had such pain physically or emotionally or relationally or spiritually as you have been forced to cry out. You're not doing it now. No one here is wailing and gnashing right now. You've had occasions, perhaps, when you've done that. You've had occasions when your soul was so overwhelmed with shame, with pain, with agony, And you thought perhaps that that would consume you, but you're sitting now in a seat, relatively comfortable, and that's not weighing heavily upon you. Hell is the unceasing experience of unending agony justly inflicted upon us because sin, our sin, is the robbing of God. God. Of his divine honor. you want to see what hell is in another avenue, you need look no further than the cross. We love to censure or censor things, and we love to cover up things, but the cross has a way of tearing off the censoring. And what does it tell us? It tells us Christ was beaten beyond recognition. It tells us he was mocked and ridiculed. You know, we take offense if someone doesn't look at us the right way. We get all up and ended when it is that someone doesn't speak to us with a proper tone. Christ was the object of ridicule. His body without clothes they're plastered on the cross and all ridiculing, making fun of Him. He said He's the Son of God. If He's the Son of God, let Him come off the cross and then we'll believe Him. He said He would restore the temple and build it up. Well, let's see Him do something now and then we'll believe Him. He's being thrown all of these things while He is, as it were, nailed to the cross, bearing the physical torment, all of the shame heaped upon him. Could you imagine for a moment, not of false accusations, but if you were paraded before the world and all of the just accusations were there hurled against you. Every sinful, vain, wicked thought, every word of such petty concern about yourself, Every action and maneuvering and attempt to vindicate yourself was displayed. And all of the circumstances to show to the world this. Your fundamental love is your vain self. And the world says, what a fool. What an utter and complete absolute fool. Fool that they would serve themselves with such vehement desire instead of giving God glory. That's what will happen, by the way, on the last day for every single person who failed to look to Jesus Christ. Well, Christ now is on the cross experiencing that shame. And yet, brethren, realize this. None of the shame was because of something he had done. All of this restoring, all of this paying off of what needed to be restored, all of this displaying what was right and good by the way of justice being answered, this is what's taking place as Christ pays back, restores what he took not away. It is paying off What others had stolen, divine laws broken, divine goodness despised, divine right dishonored. Here is the need in the presence of a holy God. Do you know one thing that will not be heard on the last day from you, from anyone? That's unfair. Oh, how it's easily out of our mouths today, isn't it? It's so quick to come at, well, hell's not fair. Well, the pain I'm feeling is not fair. It's not fair. That's not fair. It's not fair. And fundamentally, really what we're saying is, that doesn't line up with what I think is right. And yet, brethren, on the last day, everyone's orientation will switch to see the only concern we ought to have had is, what is God's right? Not mine, but God's. And on that last day, it will be seen most clearly that he was worthy of nothing but constant worship, constant honor, constant praise, constant love. Well, here's the need. It's sin that God's justice has executed against. Well, notice, secondly, the way of restoration. It's what he took not away, but he says... I restored that which I took not away. All of our taking from God, all of our idolizing of ourselves, all of our, in the moment, seeming wise and, you know, uh, complex and, you know, uh, very wise reasonings, all of a sudden it's disclosed for what it is, utter, abhorrent, self-foolishness, and wickedness. And Christ says, I didn't take it away. What did I do? What is it that Christ did in his life, in his ministry? He ever gave his father glory. He ever loved his neighbor. He ever taught the truth. He ever spoke the truth. He ever lived the truth. He ever loved the truth. All that he ever did was utterly, completely, and fully conformed to the law of God. There are relative ways we can say, you know, I'm walking in God's law. And yet what Christian is there who says, at my best, I'm fully in conformity to God's law? Not one of us. Not one of us in this life will ever get to the point, or at least we shouldn't get to the point, of saying, you know what? When I see what I'm doing, I now have arrived. I now have fulfilled all that God's law requires. And yet Jesus Christ never did anything but perfectly fulfill the law of God. And yet he now is the one restoring what we have taken away. This expression is directing us to the fact that he has made the substitute for his people. We read earlier from Isaiah 53, and you can see this point throughout where it is, in verse 5, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And with His stripes we are healed. Notice especially those first two clauses. He was wounded. For what? For our Iniquities, our transgressions. He was bruised. For what? For our iniquities. What's true of Him and what's true of us? He's the one wounded. He's the one bruised. He's the one restoring what's true of us. There are transgressions. There are iniquities. The way of restoration, if ever we should enjoy that restoration, is by Christ crucified as our substitute. There's no other way. If you hope to have peace with God, it will not be through man-invented ways of reconciliation. You can think of it in all of the false religions, Islam, submission to God and its noble features as they love to put forth. But here's what Islam's lacking, a way of appeasing God. There's no atonement. Roman Catholicism, with its false sacraments, confirmation, and all of the other uh, five additional sacraments, are man-devised false ways of seeking to satisfy God. And yet, set that aside. In our hearts are unnumbered desires and attempts to seek a way to make ourselves accepted with God. And so we comfort ourselves. Well, I'm not that bad, really. You know, I'm not out murdering people. And well, sure, I've done this and that, but it's not as bad as others. And relatively speaking, I must be in the top 10% of the society that is today in morality. And so I'm pretty good. God surely isn't going to demand perfection. I read my Bible, well, once a week, maybe, maybe a couple times a month. I don't know how many times, but I read it every once in a while. At least I read it. I go to church well you know at least twice a month I'm there and so on and all of these things if you listen to the reasoning of the flesh is a constant lessening of the standard of God and it's bringing in again to the idolizing of self saying surely I'm good enough it's resting in self but the way of restoration has nothing to do with your deeds and everything to do with what Christ has done. The only hope for being restored is taking Christ as our substitute. This is precisely what the fundamental and essential character of the gospel ministry is all about. Paul makes this quite plain in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he says that, Uh, God has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. And what is it? Well, improve yourself. You know, if you get better at time management, if you're a better student, if you're a better wife, a better mother, you'll be okay with God. That's not it. Well, be a church goer. If you're there more, if you read your Bible, that's not it. Be a better spouse, be a better child, be a better pastor, be a better person, be a good mom, be a good dad. None of that is the way of restoring. And yet, laden in our heart is this thought, if I improve, surely God will accept me. But that's not the message of the ministry of reconciliation. What is it? It's that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them and have committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God, for he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's the way of restoration. It's not us restoring it, There's no way we can restore it. There's no possibility of us meeting what is required for it. If you want to restore what you've taken back, here is the guarantee from God's word. The only way you're going to do that is with everlasting torment in hell. If you want the honor and so-called dignity of yourself working it off, it's not purgatory. For however many thousands of years people think, that such a false place will be. It is damnation without relief because your dishonor of God is an infinite evil that requires that punishment forever. But the way that God has settled upon, the way of reconciliation and restoration is by Christ stepping forward and saying, I am going to repay What I've not taken. I am going to undertake and willing to be made sin. Though I did no sin. That my beloved people would be made the righteousness of God in me. So that now my name will be Jehovah Sidkenu. The Lord our righteousness. And my righteousness will be given to them. And their sins will be given to me. That's what's going on. Christ personally honored God, ever worshiping Him, honoring, glorifying Him. He ever honored the law. It's astonishing to us that there are so-called Christians who say, let's not worry about the law. Christ everywhere shows the law is to be honored. And why? Well, as none less than his apostle under the New Testament, informing Christians says, the law is good and holy and just. Its essence is testifying of what's good, holy, and just. And as we're called to be holy, the law tells us those standards of holiness. And yet it's Christ who perfectly honored the law. He personally did all of these things. What he said to John the Baptist, suffer it to be so now because it is necessary for what? To fulfill righteousness. Could have been said every second and every breath, And every moment of his earthly ministry, he was ever set upon righteousness. How could you quantify your zeal for God? You say, well, I could say it's not 100%. But, you know, there are times when it gets up into the 90s. You know, if I were going to grade myself, I'm not going to give myself a D. You know, that'd be ridiculous. Not even a C. The C sounds bad maybe a B, a B plus. I mean, uh, relatively speaking, I'm comparatively better than others. But here's the thing. God doesn't grade on a curve and he doesn't reward anything but perfection. Whatever your zeal is on that meter, let's be clear, it's never reached 100%. It may be charted here and there. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less. But for Christ, it was never anything but 100%. We say, well, let's measure it differently. What about, you know, of course, I can't do it all the time, but there are seasons of my life when there's more zeal and more commitment to to God. Well, okay. And yet there are also seasons where it's not the case. How many times have you and I awakened in the morning and we've read the Bible and we've said, this is life. This is what I want. I want to forsake sin. I would readily have the cross of Christ pierced through my heart right now. That I would no longer think wrong thoughts or speak bad words or whatever else and give myself fully. You read books, good books, and talks about denying yourself and what was once abhorrent to you. And I would say, that's the life I want. I want to deny myself. I want happily to bear my cross. I want happily to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, that same day, some petty thing comes up and we dig our heels in. What's that revealing? that even in those seasons when we think, this is now the advance of Christ's kingdom in my life, God's revealing to us, really? What about a meal that you don't want to eat? What about a trip you don't want to take? What about temperature in a room that doesn't really go with what you want? What about a schedule that your wife has or your husband has that you aren't particular about? What about a word spoken that isn't really up to what you desire? And all of a sudden, this issuing of the ooze of wickedness comes out. All saying what? How dare they not satisfy me? And yet, brethren, think of this. Christ always was exclusively focused on the glory of his Father in the good of his people. He never once complained. He never once came and said, you guys are bickering about this. You know, come on, look what I'm doing. You know, how is it that you're doing this when I'm doing these other things? But he humbled himself. When his disciples are bickering about who's going to be greatest, what does he do? He girds himself in the fashion of a servant and he washes their feet and he says, you know what I've done? I, the son of man, have served you. And he doesn't do it with his waggon finger and saying, now get it together. But he says, now go and do likewise. He himself is exemplifying again and again. The whole of his ministry is a grand example of this because it is a sincere pursuit of restoring for us what we have stolen. And more than that, it's fulfilling all righteousness, honoring the law. He also personally satisfied divine justice. So that not only is he doing that which honors the law and, as it were, earning righteousness in his account, which he then gives to his people, but he also then undertakes to pay off what they had failed to do. And so it is, he set forth as the object. Of divine vengeance and the sword of justice unsheathed by the scabbard of the Lord is thrust upon the neck and head of his own beloved son. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That moment with grand display the sword of vengeance crushes down Until it is that Christ says, it is finished. He bows the head and he gives up the ghost. What's he doing? Well, it's as is said elsewhere, he is the propitiation for our sins. He's making payment for our wickedness. This is the only way of joyous restoration. It's through Jesus Christ as our substitute. Well, lastly, what's the effect of this? Because notice this blessed testimony. He doesn't merely say, I was charged to restore, or I was accused wrongly of taking something away, and I was, you know, said my penalty should be that I would restore. He actually says, verse 4, Then I restored. What's he saying? I paid it back. I didn't take it. I didn't do it. But I did restore it. What does this mean? Well, two things. One is, He's saying that he answered justice. The justice that ought to have fallen upon his people, he took to himself and satisfied divine justice. And so at the cross, when he says, it is finished, the wrath of God is appeased for all those who trust in Christ. He is, as the scriptures say, our peace. Why is that so? Because he has satisfied not only the law of God, But the justice of God upon the cross. This is the good news that Jesus Christ suffered for our sins and made payment in atoning for them before the Lord on the cross. This means justice is answered. And so as you and I think about, oh, look at all the ways I've robbed God. This speech, that action, this thought, this desire, that pettiness, and a whole host of things in the closet that I don't even know are there. Look at all of that. When it is we look to Christ and we look again at that, it's all gone. It's not there anymore. Because Christ has taken it all and He's paid it back with perfection. What an utter ridiculous thought That there has to be anything extra done by ourselves, by others, to pay off our debt. Because when Christ says, I restored it, he's saying, all that was required has been fully restored. All that was required by justice has been fully done. Such that it is finished. There's nothing more to pay back. The other thing that this brings to us when we start to discern the riches of this truth is it gives us peace, but only as we look to Christ. Only as we look upon Him as our Savior, receive Him as our substitute, rely upon Him fully as our salvation, as the Restorer, as the one who indeed was made to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And it's those prepositional phrases so frequent in the New Testament where we find this great comfort in Him. So many times Paul is putting that expression together in Christ, in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in Him. It's all in Him that we have peace such that as we read, Christ is our peace. Not you, not your changed life, not your relative goodness compared to others. It is Christ and Christ only who is our peace. It's not to deny that he purifies us. It's not to deny that he sanctifies us, but your sanctification is not your peace with God because your sanctification in this life is incomplete. It's imperfect, Never in this life will you arrive at a state where you can say, Now I am, with utter perfection, fully conformed to the will of God. That awaits us in heaven. In this life, there's always something that is imperfect. Our best prayers and most fervent petitions, our earnest zeal in sharing the gospel, our self-denying acts, our reading of the Bible, our teaching of our children, our coming to the Lord's table with faith and hope and love yet still contains the noxious poison of self in all of it. So that if you ever think to look to yourself, you look to the wrong source of help. It is Christ only who is our peace. Christ only who is our salvation. Christ only who is our hope. And this is where we have so many tailspins in our experience. It's because we're trying to make a name for ourselves. We're trying to make ourselves presentable. It's that we're trying, as it were, to rely upon ourselves. When Christ is saying, I am the one who's restored what you've stolen. I am the one who has given what you took. I am the one who has satisfied divine justice for you. I, out of love, have taken your place. Why will you look anywhere else for your identity? Why will you look anywhere else for your encouragement? Why will you look at the person in in the mirror? Because the person in the mirror is the one who took these things. You need not to look to the mirror, but rather to the word which directs us to Christ, who says, I am your peace. I am your salvation. It's God who says, look unto me. All the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none other. It's Christ who said that as the brazen serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And just as those who were struck with the venom of those fiery serpents looked to the serpent and were healed, so we must look to Christ and be healed we say, well, you know, I'm going to tend to this myself. I'm going to wrap it. I'm going to nurse it. I'm going to rest it. I'm going to do all of these things. We're certain to die and perish in our sins. But if we say, I can't do anything except look to Christ, it's then that it is we are healed and saved. Peace is restored. We're no longer that criminal in the economy of God's world, but rather our whole record is perfectly wiped clean, not out of some, you know, sleight of hand, but rather out of the answer of justice by the blood and righteousness of Christ. Christ restores all that we might have peace. There's so much in this, brethren, but we must hasten to our close. Here is the and the only way of reconciliation with God. It's by Christ restoring what you have taken. It's by Christ paying off the debt that you owed. And for a moment, settle it in your mind. If you hope to have it any other way, you will have to restore it. But the cost of restoring it personally for you is the unending torment of the agony of a justly deserved damnation in the hands of a just and holy God why what foolishness oh what fools it will be if anyone here young men teenagers children adults if you think to carry on casually with Christ certify this in your life right now you will go to hell Christ will have no casualness with him because he's either your life or he's nothing. He's either your whole hope or he's nothing. If you will not have Christ, you will answer for your sins, everyone. You can't have Christ and something of your own devising. You can't have Christ and a little bit of your own wisdom. You can't have Christ and a little bit of your own righteousness because that little bit of your own is infinitely reprehensible in the sight of God and will plunge you into the depths of the fiery abyss forever. The only hope you have is to look exclusively to Christ and say, I have nothing to contribute. I have nothing I can add. I have nothing I can add to the work of Christ. Instead, I take Him as He's held forth to me. And Brethren, think. Is this not the very display of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper? When Christ takes bread and he breaks it and says, this is my body broken for you. He doesn't say, what do you bring into the table? What are you going to insert into the bread? What are you going to add to the ingredients? How are you going to bring something worthy? What payment are you going to make? He says, no, this is my body. And it's broken for you. Take it. He didn't say buy it. He didn't say exchange for it. He didn't say trade for it. He didn't say barter for it. He says take it. He was forced to pay back. To restore what he did not take away. And now he says take me. Though you can do nothing to earn it. He gives himself freely to us. And he says, this is the only way. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. It's my blood shed for the remission of sins. There's nothing you add. Don't you dare add anything to it because it's my blood only which cleanses. You take it, you drink it, and in drinking, you have faith that my blood cleanses you from all unrighteousness. This is the way of restoration with God. And it's all by Christ. Just stand with me for prayer.